Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes. On this episode of Talking Apes, we'll be bouncing between environments, the urban wilds of Atlanta, Georgia, and the edges of Africa's Congo Basin, just outside Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're looking for answers to our conservation dilemma. In fact, why is there even a dilemma? Is conservation more complicated than just saving species? Should we be asking, do we need to rethink our conservation conversations? The way we communicate about conservation. You would think conservation and protecting endangered species would be, at least by now, a no-brainer. But if it is, why is it the media is peppered with accounts of yet another species endangered, yet another species on the brink of extinction? You know, for nearly 200 years, the thinking around conservation has been evolving. But we have to ask ourselves, has it evolved fast enough? Fast enough to effectively connect us to the world around us. This time on Talking Apes, we're joined by researcher Alea Boyd, and we'll journey into the world of conservation psychology. Alea is a postdoctoral fellow at Duke University and explores human thinking and behavior to improve biodiversity conservation efforts. Her research examines what influences how we think about conservation and endangered species. Alea is currently conducting comparative conservation studies with three groups of people that have a stake in the future of Central Africa's wildlife, folks in the United States, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and China. Her ultimate goal is to use those results from the behavioral experiments to improve policy and communication around biodiversity conservation. That's this time on Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you. To nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Welcome to Talking Apes, Alea. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. It's, it's really exciting to have you here. You know, the fact that you're working in conservation education was really exciting to me. And when we found out about it, we were dying to have you on because that's really at the core of what we're trying to do at Globio, or the parent nonprofit, I should say, behind our Talking Apes program. Conservation, as you know, is so different in every place you go. There's cultural influences and perspectives, and there's economic and social influences. And I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who's actually studied that, not just made the observations that we have when we're in the field, but actually studied it academically and maybe could offer some insights to us. This was really, really exciting. So we're super excited to have you here. I wanted to start with just the whole idea of conservation. Sure. I think that at least in uh, more Western environments like where we live, we have um, a very broad notion of conservation. And I think that the way that we tend to think about it, it kind of falls into two categories. We think of conservation in our daily life. So conserving water, um, conserving resources, um, any natural resources that um, we encounter on a daily basis. But then we kind of have this more romanticized idea of conservation that applies to other places. So conserving the animals of Africa or of Southeastern Asia. And that's a very distant and foreign um, goal and activity and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, something that's reserved for like a wealthier population, kind of a hobby, right? But in general, if you, if you think about those two ideas, it all comes down to changing behavior um, and convincing people to stop exploiting something. Conservation is um, the idea of changing behavior to not do something. And that's a really difficult psychological um, concept to get around. And I think that that's been the basis of a lot of my work is, in my mind, conservation, when you think about it, everything comes down to conservation is based on changing human behavior. Every single aspect of conservation revolves around um, getting people to do something differently. So that's kind of how I've always thought about it. Um, and we, and it's, to me, it makes perfect sense, but it's a bit of a challenge. You, you look at a lot of conservation, you know, the average conservation uh, conference, for example, and who 
is attending those conferences, it's mostly going to be biologists. Um, occasionally, they'll have economists there, environmental economists who are thinking about markets, supply and demand. Um, maybe you'll have some activists, and maybe that's the closest thing you get to people who are thinking about human behavior. But there's no systematic understanding of the only way we're going to change um, people's behaviors if we study it, if we really understand it, that's what's going to lead to um, systemic changes to improve um, the situation for all types of natural resources, not just species, but for, for water, for forest, etc. And a fundamental aspect of that is understanding that the human species is not a monolith, that um, there are local psychologies, interactions with economies, and local traditions that impact how we think, how a population thinks about the natural world around them. So if we want to change human behavior to benefit other species and natural resources, you have to have a fundamental understanding of how a population thinks about those resources in question. Does it seem like over time that there has been a feeling of, of conservation coming from, well, for lack of a better way to put this, a, a white perspective, a white male perspective. It's like, this is how we do conservation, you know, it, and going back 150 to 200 years. It's like, you know, we go in, we lock up a piece of land, we lock up a, a space and we save it. And we, often we kick the people out who live there. And there's this sort of isolationist, colonialist approach to conservation. We haven't spent a lot of time, it seems, looking at what people in that place think about the species, think about the resources they're using, and, and in turn, I guess, think about conservation. Do you find that that's, when you're looking at it from a behavioral change standpoint, is, is that still a difficult wall to sort of punch through um, when you're working with conservation organizations, whether they be you know, zoo institutions or the giant, almost corporate conservation groups? Is there still that wall that we have to punch through? I think that's absolutely still a major problem that conservationists need to overcome is the, the perception that has come from decades, centuries of colonization and imperialism. And this notion that, you know, these westernized cultures know what's best for the environment or for um, species in other countries. You know, you, you look at some of the the efforts even over the past century that have kind of tainted the, the conservation field. So, I mean, I, I can speak mostly to anecdotes and, and, and stories that I've heard from the Central, Central Africa and Eastern Africa, which is where I have the most um, experience working. And, you know, we hear stories of, of Western conservationists who go in to stop poaching of, of great apes, of, of chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas, that there's this effort to to stop poachers, which can often turn violent. You know, it took us a long time. It took, it took conservationists a long time to realize that people who are poaching, it's not a moral failing. It's not a, people aren't, aren't doing the, this thing out of, you know, negative um, feelings towards another species. They're trying to feed their family. It's an economic issue. And we can't necessarily change that by imposing a different psychology on a different population. It's we need to get to the root of the economic problem. The only way that you can go about changing these type of um, uh, issues like poaching is to get is to talk to the people who are, who are doing that that particular thing to, who are poaching and understanding um, how you can change it for the better to benefit both humans and um, the animals in question. And without that input from the local populations, you're never going to have lasting sustainable change for any conservation issue. I think a lot about how I was in Johannesburg uh, two years ago um, working on an elephant conservation initiative. You know, the, the, the problem that, that we were brought in there to solve, it was a, it was a variety of conservationists and um, elephant biologists. And, you know, the, the question was all about, like, how do we get elephants to stop raiding people's crops? You know, there was a huge presence of Western and American NGOs who are like, oh, we need to fly these animals or, you know, 
do non-kill calls where we bring them to other countries and we need to protect this very precious species and everything. And all the people who were brought in were all Westerners and no one was listening to the people who were there on the ground saying like, you know, we're afraid of these animals and we have ideas too <laughs> about how we can potentially solve this that will benefit the entire community. And without that local input of people who have knowledge about the land and the history and who have skills um, for tracking and who have been living in this particular population or in this particular region uh, with knowledge of local populations and um, the elephants, you're never going to create lasting change. And so I think that there's a, a huge ask for um, the existing big NGOs who are focusing on a lot of conservation issues to incorporate uh, the voices and the local perceptions of people on the ground, because those are the people who are going to be, re you know, left with the decisions about these big conservation um, uh, changes. And I mean, sustainability for any of these these um, questions can only come with local input. Yeah, I mean, it as you're as you're saying that it. It's interesting because I, we're talking about behavior change, and I think mm -hmm. people would assume that the behavior change we're talking about is with the poacher, let's say, or the you know the people on the ground. But it, it seems like there's an equal amount of behavior change that needs to go on in the conservation boardrooms. Um, yeah. And and <laughs> so it's like maybe you need, there's some experiments that need to be done there about behavior change too when they they have their annual board meetings. Um, yeah, I mean, so just. For as an example, um, so my background is mostly in psychology, and you know we um, kind of one of the the foundational principles of of looking at what we call conservation psychology um, is you know there are three things that you want to um, evaluate when you're looking at a particular program or initiative, and that's knowledge, attitude, and behavior. And what we know is that changing people's knowledge about something doesn't actually translate to changing behavior, right? And um, I remember taking a look at one, one of the well-known, I won't say names, but one of the well-known um, uh, American NGOs, I was looking at their annual report, and all it had um, as the graphics were just facts and figures about when um, certain species are going to go extinct and when um, uh, forests are going to be completely decimated. And to me, that was mind-boggling because unless you are a biologist, none of those um, facts and figures mean anything. It's, it's, it's pointless if you're trying to get people to, to be impacted by something. And so to me, I was like, oh, this is a marketing issue. Um, um, they need to know that like um, human behavior responds to different types of messages and just these facts and figures about, you know, when a particular species is going to go extinct doesn't mean anything to the average person. And um, so there's a, I think there's a communication problem at the top level as well um, in terms of how they're dis disseminating information, how they're connecting to different groups and understanding that um, different populations think differently and that there needs to be more targeted um, messages if you want to get information across about the importance of conservation in a variety of different settings. It, yeah. Um, it, I mean, this brings it, what, what you're discussing, I mean, brings up, I, I was in Cameroon a few years ago and just it was the day before I was about to fly out, I think, and I was meeting with one of the NGOs that works locally on the ground. They're a local NGO. They work locally there on the ground trying to save a, a patch of rainforest called Abo Forest. And they said, hey, can you want to, you know, grab a drink with us this afternoon? We, there's a couple that a couple of the people who work at their NGO who have just come back for from like a year and a half overseas. One was in the States. One was in the UK, I think. Uh, male and female. And so we were all meeting and I was asking them about the conservation, you know, they, they had been there studying conservation strategies and so forth. And what I found was really interesting was 
they essentially were parroting this sort of Western world top-down conservation strategy to apply to Cameroon. And I said, I mean, you guys grew up here. Don't, I mean, don't you see this is never going to work? And it, it was only after, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of discussion that they began to just, they were kind of rolling their eyes going, yeah, this is not necessarily going to work here. And, and that's what I think we find from a Globio perspective is as we look to work with our partners on the ground in conservation, education, environmental outreach, uh, there's, there seems to be this knee-jerk reaction to just grab what has been brought to us and, and try to apply it. Um, and there's far less sort of probing in, in the schools and in the villages um, to try to understand what it is that that communication piece is, that marketing piece that you were discussing. I mean, what, what does that look like? Um, and how does it sound to the people that you're you're talking to and trying to understand that behavioral change. So how do, how do we do that? How, how do we go about, because that seems, that seems to be the place where we have to start creating the change if we're really going to create, start protecting forests and protecting chimpanzees and you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that um, one of the areas where I focused on is how we evaluate education programs and conservation education organizations. So most of my work um, is with bonobos in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I work very closely with Lolia Bonobo in Kinshasa. And one of the studies that we did a couple years ago was um, what we called an implicit assessment of their education program. So basically you look at any education program at zoos, at sanctuaries, they kind of have the same format where they ask you at the beginning of the, um, before the experience, whatever it is, the tour, they ask you your knowledge about the animals or the species in question. Um, then you go on the tour and then after they kind of ask you the, the same questions and see if there's a change more or less. Um, and, you know, you look at all these things and there's usually always a difference, right? Before and after. Great. Seems like the the education program works. But you know, we as psychologists and as people who are trained in cognitive psychology um, know that there were a couple holes in how those programs were being assessed. Number one, if you're at a conservation organization on a tour, um, you, you know what people want to hear. So you're, are you answering these questions about what you've learned and what you feel based on what you truly believe or based on what you think the people who are asking the, the survey want you to say? Um, and second, most of these organizations or these surveys only assess knowledge. And, and again, knowledge doesn't necessarily translate to behavior. So if we really want to understand if an education program, a conservation education program is working, we need to figure out better ways to assess changes in attitudes and changes in behaviors. And so that was one of the things that we set out to do at Lola. Um, and so we created the survey where um, uh, kids were, we did, well, yeah, we mostly did it for kids um, because most education is, is focused on young kids. Um, they didn't know that they were necessarily being assessed. Um, and that they, that they were being assessed for their knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. Um, we basically told them that they were um, helping us to create a, um, some advertisements for the organization. And we did this implicit test um, before and after um, the, their tour. And um, so without knowing that they were being assessed, they could give us more realistic answers. Um, and we basically found that um, when when kids don't think that they're being um, asked uh, for the answers that we want them to give, we get a more realistic um, understanding of what they've um, taken into account during a tour. And um, these type of 
methods are going to be more effective for understanding whether or not a education tour is is truly effective and then we can better assess what we need to change about a um a tour to create long-term attitude and behavior change is that is that assessment um let's call it assessment bias maybe is that assessment bias mm -hmm. limited to kids or is it do we see it no, is it applicable across the board it's it's we did this we did a similar thing with adults and we see the same thing I think it's probably more prevalent in adults than it is in kids. Hmm. Is is it a is it a case of of people thinking they know what you want to hear, or and just wanting to be right? So you mm -hmm. know, being congratulated for being right. Yes, that's exactly yeah. Da da da, and they look good in a group. Or is it? I mean, how do you, yeah? So that's how that's do you get by exactly that? it. So how do you get by well, assessment so, bias? Yeah. So let me. Yeah. So my. Let me explain it a little bit better. So most of these existing assessments are what we call explicit assessments of attitude. So it's questions like, um, now that you've seen the bonobos, do you think that we should have more measures in place to save them? Well, if you're at a conservation organization, you're going to say yes to that, whether or not you believe it or not. Um, but if you have more of an implicit assessment where that's maybe is not necessarily what you're asking. So um, what we had done in the study was um, kids were given the opportunity to choose between two pictures that they think better represent um, the messages that we're trying to say to convey at, in the tour. And maybe, you know, one is a bonobo um, in the wild with its mom and one is a bonobo um, uh, with a human. Um, wearing clothes and looking really cute. Both are equally cute um, photos, um, but one definitely better represents the messages that the organization that Lolia Bonobo is trying to convey. And um, so if we simply say like, oh, which one of these photos do you think we should include for this advertisement? Which one do you think is better? They don't necessarily know that they're being asked um, about their attitudes. They're being asked if, um, if they've kind of understood the messages that we've conveyed during this this uh tour and if they have they should be more likely to choose the photo of the bonobo with their with its uh, uh bonobo mom in the wild because that's in line with the the ideology of lola that all bonobos should be in the wild and shouldn't be with humans and so by creating these more implicit assessments um we can better assess internal attitudes, the internal attitude changes, um, as opposed to the explicit attitudes um, that people often say just because they feel like they're expected to say it. Do you, um, and, and again, we can bounce between what you did in the DRC and what you did um, in here in the US and in China, but mm -hmm. do, do people, kids, um, but people in general, do they see saving species as, di as a different thing than conservation? I would say that in more urban areas, it's a little bit separated. I think that, and I saw this a lot working in Atlanta, there's conservation in the sense of what you do at home with your family. And that's conservation of water, of electricity, other environmental related behaviors, recycling, etc. I think that all kind of goes from the same camp of like sustainability activities that you do. And I think that in the United States, or not just in the United States, in urban areas in the United States, conservation, environmental behaviors all kind of gets lumped into one category. And then I think that because so many people are are further removed from nature, from any type of wild species besides, you know, squirrel, raccoons, deers, you know, what you might see in the city. There's this separate concept of conservation of you know, the beautiful, amazing, awe-inspiring species that aren't here. They're over there. They're in Africa, they're in South America, um, and we conserve them by sending money, by 
writing petitions. We care about that, but it doesn't impact us um, directly. And I think that I saw that a lot at working with kids at, um, in Atlanta, because we, we basically did similar studies with these kids that we did in the Congo and in China. And it's really interesting comparing kids in Atlanta at a zoo who are, yeah, where they're in a camp at a zoo to kids from the Congo. In Atlanta, they're like, they care about these animals, they love them, but they go home and they don't have to think about them. There's no connection um, necessarily. Whereas in the Congo, the, the message with bonobos is always like, these are, these are special because they're only found here. Um, they're, you know, you might not see them every day, but um, they are a Congolese treasure. And that's the reason why we have to protect them. Whereas the animals that kids love at the zoo in Atlanta are lions, are um, the tigers, are all the animals that aren't necessarily found here. So there's a, there's a bit of a gap in terms of connecting everyday behavior and attitude changes to preserving that, those species. So one of the studies that I did in Atlanta was just trying to make conservation a little bit more local. And honestly, one of the few things I could come up with um, in terms of something that we could study was um, honeybees. Trying to make, you know, uh, some type of species and the impact of potentially losing that species seem more personal to kids, like losing bonobos would be to kids in the Congo. And, you know, with honeybees, you could connect it to like, oh, uh, if we lose honeybees, what are you personally going to, to lose? This is what we would talk about with the kids. And they were very quickly able to say like, oh, like all my favorite fruits and almonds and all these things, those would be lost if we don't conserve this particular species. And that was a really good way to connect um, the importance of conservation on a very personal level, the way we could with bonobos in the Congo. And so I think that overall, we, we miss that a lot in more Western environments where we don't, we think about conservation, we have this, we teach, really try to get kids to connect with all these different animals, but it's, it's very distant and very foreign by you know, creating curricula and we doing these studies and you know, making sure kids understand that if a species is lost, there's a, there's a personal effect, it will affect communities and we you know we could do that with the lesson of honeybees it, it made a difference um in in how they understood the concept of conservation are, are we inundating people with too many facts is is that part of the problem that we're we're a giving them too many facts and b the facts that we're giving them aren't tied significantly enough to their daily lives i mean i i'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to figure out where we bridge that yeah, I mean, and I'm, I, I'm coming literally from our perspective in trying to trying to sculpt education outreach materials to connect to people, and it and it seems like maybe that's maybe we're overwhelming them with facts. We need to simplify it down to the honeybee, and then start connecting dots. I think that we rely too much on on facts when it comes to conservation. I think again, I think partially we have a bit of a marketing problem. We need to figure out how to simplify messages. And I think that it's partially not conveying more facts, but it conveying experiences. So one of the studies that we did, this is the, the paper I recently sent you that isn't yet published, but um, should be soon. One of the studies in that paper looked at, we, we created this game um, with kids in Atlanta where we simulated a, um, it was a, a common goods game. So it simulated losing a forest and kids had the opportunity to contribute to the forest and they saw kind of what happened if there wasn't a collective input into saving a forest. We, um, we adapted this from behavioral economic games that were created for adults, but we, we, we uh, modified it so that it could be understood by kids as young as six and found that you know, kids who played this game where they could personally experience what happened if they didn't contribute to sustain a forest? Like they were giving up their tokens, they were losing something. There was an opportunity cost to contributing to a, a common, a collective good. When they experienced that and they really understood what conservation meant from a behavioral perspective, 
we saw that there was a longer lasting educational effect for them. So compared to kids who played, who didn't play that game, we did a, a long, a follow-up activity where we had them write letters to the mayor of Atlanta about a decision to cut down a forest. So this was made up, of course, um, of course, all approved by ethical boards and everything, but we just wanted to, to test um, whether there were long-term effects of this experience um, playing this game. And we found that the kids who had, ex who had played this game experienced the opportunity cost were more likely up to two weeks later in what they thought was a completely separate activity to draw more, write more um, to the, the, the mayor of Atlanta about the need to save a forest. And so there was a lasting effect of simply experiencing uh, this, this, this game, this loss. And so that goes to show that it wasn't necessarily about facts, it was, it was understanding an experience and having a personal connection to it. And so our takeaway from that, my takeaway was, we need to incorporate more of that into education, not necessarily just facts and figures, but teaching kids, you know, connecting it to personal um, effects and to, to their own lives, not simply talking about conservation as saving elephants um, and saving lions in a different continent, thinking about local species and uh, the importance of those things for themselves and their families. And that's probably going to have the biggest effect on increasing interest um, and understanding of conservation and leading to long-term behavior change, which is what we're most interested in. Um, again, there's knowledge, attitude, and behavior change. What we want the most is behavior change. Um, and here we have evidence of you know, this experiential learning um, with conservation is what's going to lead most to behavior change. Does that experiential learning, does it have to continue to occur over time? I mean, one of the things that I've, I've often said when people are asking about that behavioral change, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but, it, you know, I, I said it's like, it's like learning how to speak French. If you if you only take a one day course, you probably aren't going to learn a lot, and it's not going to stick with you. But if you if it's practiced over time, you build a fluency, and that fluency, regardless if you know you don't use it for a year or two, you still it'll start trick kicking back into gear. And I I just I wonder if so much of our conservation education is like a punctuation mark in their lives that it that it's difficult to build or wrap an experiential learning piece around that until you have this, until you build some fluency. We were doing observations on schools in Cameroon and the sanctuary there would go out one day a year um, to different school. I mean, they'd go out multiple days, but there would be a school once a year that would get them. And it was like this special bonus thing that this, they were coming to do environmental education, right? And they'd spend the whole day there. But it was one day a year. So much of that day was caught up in the excitement of having new people in their school that that was the experience and not the information that was, you know, that they were trying to convey. Um, and that information was mostly facts, but still it was, there wasn't that fluency. And I'm wondering if we're trying to, in, in the same way we're trying to deliver too many facts, we're also trying to deliver it to too many people and we're not concentrating enough energy on a smaller group of people who can be influencers because of the experience. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I don't, I don't think this is a easy problem to tackle. And um, I think it does require a sustained investment in um, continuing education around these issues. And if you can identify kids early or people early who are dedicated to that, then all the better. So I think that one of the greatest examples I can think of is at Lily Abenobo, um, Claudia Andre, the founder of the organization, she started what she calls, um, or what are called um, kindness clubs um, around 20 years ago. And so it's um, kids from a couple of the local schools are in Kinshasa, and they're repeatedly throughout the year, it's a couple times a year, they are invited back to the sanctuary and they're considered ambassadors um, for the bonobos and they go and they give other presentations in their schools. Um, and 
you know, this started, this started a while ago and you have certain kids who um, come back time and time again, and then their job is to disseminate information throughout the rest of their community. Um, and, you know, Claudine will, will say all the time, um, and everyone at Lily Evanova will say all the time, that the, the main, the people who call in to the sanctuary um, to report bonobos who are in captivity or um, being housed um, in, in, in homes as pets are always kids who have um, some connection to the, um, the sanctuary, who have had exposure to the kindness clubs or, or, or other um, visits to the sanctuary. And that took, that's been two decades in the making of creating this, this force of, of um, ambassadors throughout the city. Um, and it's been very targeted. And I think that's why um, it's been so successful. Um, I think, you know, similarly at, at Zoo Atlanta, um, we are doing an ongoing study about um, a, a program called the Volunteens. So these are um, students starting at age 13 who do these internships at the, the zoo where they are required to do, I think it's 250 hours per year. Um, and most of that they do over the summer. Um, and there's of course some attrition. They can do it from the time they're 13 until they're 18. There's of course some attrition every single year. Um, but you know, these kids who, you know, the, the zoo <laughs> puts a lot of attention and effort into, they go on to, to become researchers and to become zookeepers and everything and, and other, you know, a variety of other, um, animal welfare related jobs. Um, and so, yes, of course, these, these targeted approaches work, um, and it takes time to, I think that's one of the, the things with conservation is like any, anything in this field, you're not going to see, uh, results, um, or changes in behavior, especially long-term behavior in a short amount of time. And I think that we've just kind of had this revolution in the past one or two decades where we've thought about expanding um, the field of conservation. I think, you know, for the longest time it was dominated by wealthy white men. And, um, and we're just recently seeing um, this expansion to thinking about how local populations think about, um, about different species and incorporating the, the viewpoints and uh, decision-making of women and people of color and um, local leaders. And so I, I have a lot of hope um, um, that we're gonna see a lot of really positive changes in the next couple of years um, because you know, we're seeing more of these changes being, being considered. Um, it's just with anything, with education especially, the payoffs are, are, are never immediate. Um, and so, but I think that with the amount of research and, and effort that's putting into how we can optimize these systems, um, I think it's going to change for the better for the field. So for you, where did this come from? Was it behavioral psychology you were interested in, or was there a conservation moment for Alea when she was a little girl? Um, so I was always really interested in animals in general. I, I grew up in D.C., um, lived outside of the National Zoo, which you can, it's a park, you can just walk through it. And so I grew up um, just being able to, you know, stroll through and see the orangutans on the, the lines above your head um, uh, and, um, you know, hear lions roar from coffee shops outside of the, um, the zoo. And, um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I, you know, I had a family that kind of very much nurtured my love of nature um and my interest in animals and i when i um got accepted to harvard for um as an undergrad i uh as soon as i <laughs> was accepted i was like oh i know who i want to work with i want to work with richard ringham he studies chimpanzees in uganda i want to do what i can to be able to work um with him and be able to go to his site in kanyuara and work with chimpanzees um, 
and I uh, was able to somehow finagle my way um, into working with him, but I ended up not necessarily working with chimpanzees, um, but I was doing research with um, one of his graduate students, Katie McAuliffe, who's now at Boston College, who was studying um, psychology um, and uh, perceptions of inequality aversion um, in different populations. And we had the chance to do some cross-cultural work um, with um, children right outside of Kabali National Forest, which is where um, Dr. Ram's uh, field site is located. Um, and we were doing research with a school system run by his wife, Elizabeth Ross. Um, and I did that for my senior thesis. We were, we were looking at how kids thought about inequality um, and equity and doing these these um, really fun psychology experiments. And during that entire experience, what I thought was fascinating was I was living in the forest, working with other researchers who were studying chimpanzees. We were, you know, on a daily basis, we were, you know, right outside of our camps. There were all types of monkeys, um, chimpanzees would go by, we see elephants, you know, we're living in the forest. Um, and I was getting the perception, the opinions, um, musings of the researchers I was living with, who were all American. Um, but then on a day-to-day -day basis, going and working with kids and the families um, in these schools, and I just always found the, the dichotomy of um, opinions about animals to be really interesting. Um, and it just made me question a lot of like, you know, how do we restructure um, these conservation programs, especially, you know, when it's, a, it's Americans coming to Uganda, teaching um, Ugandan kids about the, the animals that they live near. Um, I was just, like, I was just questioning a lot of, of, um, of kind of the existing conservation education structures. Um, and I, I personally, I love Elizabeth Ross and the amazing system that she has at the Cassisi schools. Um, and she, you know, they, they really do an amazing job of incorporating conservation um, into the curricula for all of the schools there. Um, and so I think that system kind of inspired me to think a little bit more about like, oh, like this, you know, the um, different perceptions that um, people who live and who have, who's for generations have lived near a forest and then kind of the Western perceptions coming in and, and teaching um, their, with their own perception of the forest just, just made me question a lot of things. Um, so then I ended up applying to um, do my PhD with Brian Hare at Duke. And we like, when we were thinking about my PhD project, kind of what we came to the conclusion was, was that we both, both Brian and I, we have a background in, in psychology um, and cognition, um, uh, specifically re related to, um, to hominoids. So I also, even though I did my, my senior thesis and um, focusing on human psychology, but my background still was in um, the comparative cognition of humans, chimpanzees, and bonobos. And with everything, it, it was all related to what we call prosocial behaviors. So empathy, um, um, negotiation, cooperation. Um, and we kind of thought like, oh, if we, we have all this knowledge about why humans are unique in terms of our ability to cooperate um, and our abilities for empathy, and we have all this you know, informed by um, what bonobos are able to do, what chimpanzees are able to do, and what's unique about, about humans, why not use this knowledge that we have about um, humans' unique cognitive abilities for cooperation to solve some of the issues of conservation? Um, and as I said earlier, everything, in my opinion, everything about conservation is simply a, a human behavior, human decision-making issue. Um, and so we can operationalize conservation as um, a cooperation problem. 
um, we can use, we can take from the methods of psychology, we can take from the methods of behavioral economics um, to study this issue. And we can do it in different cultures around the world to, to figure out how um, different, peop uh, different populations, um, perceptions of time, perceptions of risk, perceptions, um, not perceptions, but uh, cultural norms influence their decision making to either benefit or harm conservation methods. So um, it kind of all came together in like, based on experience from my past, from Brian Hare's past, um, and for our passion for um, uh, conserving the species that, that we've worked with for so long and that we've cared about for so long. Um, and, and trying to use that background in science uh, for good. If where you are now in all of this and what you've learned so far, what's the next piece? What are the next pieces that we have to understand if we're going to improve sort of a conservation agenda? This this movement of it's this movement of this idea from just an idea into part of our behavior, part of our our intrinsic thinking about how we live and act and interact on this planet. I have, I have two thoughts on that. One I think is more practical and one I think is more just me being hopelessly optimistic about things. Yeah, um, so I'll start with the, the aspirational. I think that so much of conservation and the efforts of conservation could be solved if um, we had more respect for local cultures um, and differing perspectives. I think a lot about how, you know, within the Congo, working with Lola, there are two very different populations that we work with. There's the, the, the urban population of Kinshasa. Um, those are the ones who come to visit the sanctuary. And they've never seen, most of the people who've come there have never seen Bonobos in the wild. But, you know, they're, they live in Kinshasa. They, we, we tell the, um, the message of these bonobos are 100% Congolese and they should protect them because it's just a national treasure, etc. And then we have this different population that we work with, which is um, in the northern province in Basankusu, which is near the release site for the bonobos. So, so how Lola yeah, Bonobo works is bonobos are rescued from the bushmeat trade. They're um, uh, rehabilitated, rehabilitated. Um, at the sanctuary in Kinshasa. And then after time, ba and based on veterinary assessments, etc., they are re-released to the wild, the, the northern provinces of Basankusu. Um, and there are local villages that surround that, that area in the north. And so that's a very different population. And um, it's, it's in the forest, it's very rural, um, less access to um, technology to a lot of things, um, you know, there's a history in that area of, of hunting bonobos. Is that wrong? No, that's local tradition. Um, and that doesn't mean, uh, it's our responsibility, um, to go in and, and change those behaviors. It's, it's how to, it's how to work with a particular population, um, to improve outcomes for both humans and bonobos. And so I think that a more, um, empathetic, um, an understanding approach to understanding, to working with different populations, to reach conservation goals is what's necessary to, to move forward. Um, and to, to really just get for a variety of populations to just get on the same page about, about what's best for um, the future of humans and the future for the planet. Um, so that's my aspirational um, idea. And then I think on the more practical level, I think that I focus a lot and a lot of conservationists focus a lot on individual behaviors and population level behaviors for solving major conservation problems. But I don't think that that's where effort is always needed. I think that there are uh, major corporations, uh, key decision makers who are the ones who, who need to make major decisions that'll set things on, on different paths. And so I think that Sometimes we get really in the weeds about 
habitat loss and species and poaching, species loss, poaching. And we focus a lot on individual behaviors, but um, I think that there would be a lot more lasting change if we um, took more of a top-down approach. And that's just, you know, I think that from a behavioral economic and cognitive psychology level, um, that's not as interesting as a question, but removing myself from the academic sphere and going more into the, how do we actually make lasting change? I think that that's, that's um, where we need to go. Maybe that's a whole other area to look at, like um, in terms of research, another direction that we can go in. But I think that that's the, that's the ultimate goals for, to create lasting change. So we're now, now we're back to that boardroom behavioral change again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alea, this has been really wonderful. I, I would love to go on longer and longer and longer. And um, I'm, I'm hoping maybe we can find a way to work together too between what you do and what we're doing at Globia because this is really fascinating and it's so incredibly important if we are going to, to have any lasting change through, through conservation and, and uh, impact on species and forests and, and everything involved. So thank you again for taking the time to, to be on Talking Apes. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Alea Boy for sharing her insights into conservation communication and how we might more effectively save the species and the places on this planet. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcast would not be possible without listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation to globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis, and thanks for listening to Talking Apes. <laughs>